Welcome to Great Minds. And our amazing, amazing guest today is one of the true icons of American music. And I'm talking about the just, uh, Martha, I can't tell you what a privilege it is. I'm talking about Martha Reeves, the one and only. Welcome, Martha. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, it's wonderful to have you. And Martha, I want to go back and start uh, and talk about someone who I know is very near and dear to you. And that's the Reverend Elijah Reeves. And I'd love to start by talking about your grandfather and your remembrances of singing at the Metropolitan Church. You want me to go back to childhood? Okay. I have uh, been very, very, very proud to tell people that I started singing in my grandfather's church. The Reverend Elijah Joshua Reeves Sr. had uh, eight children. My father was number seven, and he was the one he preferred to call and to, to name after him as a junior. My father had the only talented children, and there were 12 of us, Elijah Joshua Reeves Jr. and Ruby Lee Gilmore were married 47 years before one of them departed to go to heaven, and they're both now in heaven, but we were all taught to sing and to to worship, Daddy being a guitarist. He preferred playing the blues in his idle times, uh, but we uh, were all taught to sing and perform. And uh, there were 12 of us, and there were seven of us yet alive, and two of my sisters, Sandra and Delphine, have been working with me as backup singers, my Vandellas, for the past, uh, the 1960s, when Lois first joined me and Delphine joined me in uh, 80. So we're having a good time in show business, and it's a lasting career, 64 years. So Elijah Joshua, Reverend Elijah Joshua Reeves, Sr., did a, a great thing, <laughs> having, having children and blessing us with the talent. He sure did. Now, I know you were born in Alabama and moved as a baby, like so many from the South, moved up north to cities like Chicago, like Detroit. Um, and you talked a little bit about, you know, guitar playing and wanting to play the blues. But talk a little bit about gospel and what role that played in your life and I know from conversations with contemporaries of yours, people like uh, the great Darlene Love, who we also had on Great Minds, I know there was a real conflict between singing gospel and then crossing over and see, singing secular music. I have a, a, a great love for uh, Darlene Love. I understand her father is a minister. However, my first uh, encounter with gospel was with mama and the first song she taught me was yes Jesus loves me yes Jesus loves me yes Jesus loves me for the Bible tells me so and that song has stuck with me all my life and it was good to know that Jesus loves me and God sent Jesus here to to save the, the, the sinners and to give us strength and hope and faith and uh, I've lived with that. And my first debut as a singer was, was with my two older brothers, Benny, who, who has sang most of his mil- military career. We're Navy people. Benny was in, sang for most of the USO clubs. He re-enlisted three times. And I think he's got one of the greatest voices I've ever heard. Uh, uh, Benny and Thomas let me sing with them. And we sang a song called Jesus Met the Woman at the Well. And it was a real good uh, lesson there, too. There, there's, there's wisdom in gospel songs. If you pay attention to the words and then follow through uh, with Bible scripture, it, it gives you the common sense that God wants us to have. There's a, there's a wisdom in, in the gospel songs. And uh, I, I guess anyone who 
actually saying gospel would understand what I'm trying to say and what I know. I know that God hears us, he gives us the talent, and he blesses us as we ask him. We ask and the doors are open. We seek and we find and we knock and we, we get the careers that we've been endowed with. Fantastic. So clearly people like your grandfather, the reverend, very influential, the church, very influential, and your mom in exposing you to and music and yeah. your dad, right? Forgive me. Yeah. And you also went to a great high school and uh, I'd love to bring up the name Abraham Silver, who taught so many, including you and Florence Ballard and Mary Wilson, later of the Supremes. But what are your remembrances going back to Northeastern High in Detroit and a guy who was just a legendary vocal coach, name lost in history, Abraham Silver? Let's start with Ruby. Ruby, Mama taught me to sing as she would uh, comb and braid my hair. She, and she would be very proud on Easter Sunday when I'd stand up and make the speeches that she would teach me. Uh, elementary school, there was a wonderful woman by the name of Emily Wagstaff. I went to a school called Russell Elementary right here in Detroit. And it was very near the Eastern Market, if people would like to know uh, a little bit about the geographic p part of, of Detroit that I came from. Um, she had um, the the knack of picking out the gifted kids in the music class, maybe about the fourth grade. She would uh, have us sing, and at the end of the class, she noticed that my mom had taught me how to retain lyrics. So she taught me all the anthems. In the fourth grade, I knew uh, God Bless America, the Star Spangled Banner, My Country Tis, tis of Thee, and uh, that's before they took religion out of the schools. She taught me quite a few songs, especially This Is My Country, which I think every American should know. Um, and she uh, had one of her favorite songs called Only a Rose that I thought was so dear. This is only a rose, I give you only a song dying away. I mean, she taught me Broadway melodies in, in the fourth grade. So then when I got into high school, sitting in the class of uh, the uh, Glee Club, Abraham Silver recognized that I could sing Vaxalia. They went through the class, uh, the, the uh, role that I sang in, sang in as we were sectioned off in the soprano alto and, and uh, second soprano sections. And uh, being Reeves, I was in the back of the class. But as he went from the A's to B's to C's, whoever came, finally got to Martha Reeves, I stood up and I, I sang the, the riff that he was trying to get everybody to sing, he was delighted. Featured me in my graduation, featured me at our spring concert. We had the first broadcast on the radio that Northeastern history uh, will tell, and uh, eventually at my graduation. We did also a performance at the Henry Ford Auditorium. For those that are, are familiar with Henry Ford, not only did he make a wonderful factory here in the city of Detroit, he made one of the most acoustically perfect uh, halls, uh, concert halls. The Henry Ford Auditorium was torn down uh, last year, and I featured it in a, uh, what would you call this? A, uh, what do you call it when they, they do documentaries? Yeah. Uh, so method is a, is a, uh, is a band that uses synthesized and, and uh, these uh, new tools that they call instruments, these new to toy tools. And uh, we did a song and was featured on Jimmy Kimmel's television show, uh, Regeneration, where they used synthesized instruments along with um, real musicians. Most of the guys who were featured in, th in that particular documentary have passed on. But we did capture the sound of music and, and uh, the uh, electronic devices to show that we could, we could combine the music and make it heavenly. Um, just the experience of having acoustic um, instruments were recorded on Motown records. My first three songs had the, uh, the, the uh, uh, symphonic upright bass. And I don't think you can really sing or have a two tone in your voice if you never heard a bass 
the, the kind that James Jameson would hug, the, the round, upright concert bass. If you've never heard those tones, then you, you, you don't really know or have a true pitch in your singing uh, when you're recording. It was just so many things that happened along the way to bring me to the point where I consider myself uh, a great singer and a legendary icon and, and a, a part of history vocally because of the training and because of the many teachers that I had and the people that who God sent to me <laughs> to develop me into the person that, that I am and proud to be. Great, great stuff, Martha. What a wonderful stories. So let's go back before the Vandellas, and um, and I don't want to make a mistake. I know you were in the Fascinations, you were in the Delphi's, but talk about some of those earliest singing groups, which I think goes all the way back to about 1957. Yeah, right after, well, just before I graduated high school, and it was a group called the Delphi's. Our friend Charles Jackson was in the military, and I met him as he was campaigning for some politician here in the city. He said he knew some girls who needed a second soprano and a second lead in their group, and if I would meet them. So I was introduced to Gloria Williamson, Annette Beard, and Rosalind Ashford. And uh, after sitting, sitting with them a couple of minutes and singing, because Gloria had gospel roots, and it was also the choir director in our church. We had such a beautiful angelic blend until I was sort of captured by them and their uh, voices. I regret not going to school with them and not knowing them uh, very well, but the, but the music spoke for itself and the blend of our voices, it has been recorded and, we, and people know the sound of the, the uh, Vandellas. The Vandella uh, group was formed after I, as a single performer, Martha Lavelle, after the Delphi's had gone on to take jobs because our single recording on Checkmate Records in Chicago, <laughs> a song called I'll Let You Know, which was an answer to a J.J. Barnes recording, Won't You Let Me Know, uh, Fred Brown, our manager, decided that uh, he would go on and, and keep being a postman and we were sort of left on our own since the record didn't sell. I started singing as Martha Lavelle and uh, won a contest at the Warfield Theater. My reward was three nights at a club here called the 20 Grand, and it would be at the happy hour when people get off work and go and have a drink. The Levi Mann Trio, who worked the, the jazz room down in the lower part of the 20 Grand, was like a tri, uh, triplex. They had four or five floors in this uh, facility. There was a gold room. There was a fireside lounge. There was a uh, main uh, 20 grand room. And I played all of them <laughs> eventually. But this time, uh, William Stevens, an A&R director from Hitsville, USA. It wasn't known as Motown Records until the labels were established. But this was Hitsville, USA, a house that Barry Gordy had converted with the help of his sister, Esther Gordy, Esther Edwards, actually, the, uh, well, the sister, his sister was married to a senator. <laughs> and I think that's what helped Barry establish his, his mansion uh, from a house to a, a actual recording studio. It was like divine order. Everything worked as if puzzles were being put together. Here we had... Uh, my, I won a contest as, as an amateur. I was discovered by a professional and asked to come to a company with a business card, and I showed up the very next day. What a you know what a what a uh, a story this makes because it was all in divine order. My dad said when I got back home on time, he he asked me to be in his house at twelve o'clock. So after singing at the happy hour and being discovered, I uh, showed up at Hitchville, USA secretary time, 9 o'clock the very next morning on a Monday, and I saw a line of people outside, but I could breeze by them because I had a card. I went into that off, into that house, and the receptionist, her name was Juana Royster, I'll never forget her because she had a beautifully high-pitched voice. She said, may I help you? And I said, yes, may I see Mr. Stevenson? And I showed her my card. She was busy with a four-line uh, switchboard 
pushing the little buttons in and pulling them out with her earphones. So she just buzzed the door. And on the other side, here was the same man, William Stevenson, who had given me this card and invited me to Hitsville, USA. He was in the office. He had taken his his jacket off. He had loosened his tie because he was dressed. Oh, he was so sharp. He hadn't, hadn't gone to sleep. He had his sleeves rolled up, and he was writing a song for this drummer named Marvin Gaye, who I got to know was fourth on the drummer's list. As he asked me to answer a phone, he'd be right back. I was exposed to the list of musicians, and I was exposed to the uh, to the, the phone calls that were coming in in his absence. I would answer the phone because I had a commercial course in high school. A&R department, may I help you? I knew where I was, but nobody knew who I was. And their first response was, who is this? <laughs> so I started saying, Martha Reeves, may I help you? And got to be known by the different office people who were in the different buildings. He had three or four buildings similar to Hitsville, USA. I have to paint that picture for you because it was a residence on the boulevard, more like a mansion because it had many, many rooms. But I was in right off the switchboard, right off the main reception area in the A&R department, answering the phone and taking notes for a gentleman who was gone maybe two or three hours writing this song called Stubborn Kind of Fellow. Anyway, uh, the Delphi's were called in to do backup on the song that William Stevenson wrote. It was my doing because I couldn't locate the girls who were the standard backup singers called Dion Dante's. People that know the Motown history know that Marlene, Jackie, and Louvain were those beautiful high voices on nearly every record. As a matter of fact, uh, they took the place of the Raber voices. The Raber voices sang on Marv Johnson's uh, recording, You Got What It Take. And uh, they, they were, it was Raber voices were Barry Gordy's wife, Renoma Singleton, and uh, Robert Bateman, and uh, I think it was... Um, Oh, I can't think of her name. But they were the backup singers before the Antantes. The Antantes were the best. And they recorded for all the major labels, not just Motown. And when I was asked to call backup singers to sing behind the song that he wrote for Marvin Gaye called Stubborn Kind of Fella, I called uh, to get no answer and finally decided I'd call in the girls that I'd been singing with in the Delphi. Gloria Williamson. And that beard, the Rosalind Ashford. I called him in. Rosalind had a job at the telephone company. Annette was working at a soda fountain, and Gloria Williamson worked for the city of Detroit in the traffic department. Well, she didn't want to give her her job after recording the, that first single with, with uh, Marvin Gaye, but uh, the word got around, and Barry Gordy heard the backup blend and asked who we were, and, uh, and uh, I had the fortunate time to have the union come in on Barry to tell him that there should be a singer on the mic when they recorded tracks. They recorded as many as 10 tracks a day with the Funk Brothers who were regular session musicians who could be called on and were there nearly every day, almost like a factory. They reported almost like a factory, recording song after song produced by the staff of writers who were in the A&R department. I didn't mention that there were 17 of the producers, people like Colin Dozier Holland, Smokey Robinson, uh, Andre Williams, uh, William, uh, oh God, I can't think of all of them in a, in a in succession, in a hurry, but there were 17 guys. Smokey Robinson was the head of the, the A&R department's uh, musicians and producers. He was the best, he was the ace of the uh, producers. And uh, they would report every day, and they would be assigned sessions, and. Uh, I made friends with them mainly because I got their paychecks prior to the appointed time. 
they were insisted I had a rebellion going on that day. They weren't going to cut the songs that they were, they had uh, designed for them that day because they wanted their pay from the last day. I don't know. Sometimes musicians are not uh, sure of the people they work with, so they want it to be uh, according to the union. The union was called in. I was called to a mic, and I sang a song for Mary Wells, who was leaving the company at the time. I had no idea. And I didn't replace Mary Wells. She could never be replaced, being the first diva and the first hit maker uh, as a solo artist, as a female artist. Her story is, is one that should be told because she did approach Barry Gordy at a record hop and sing a song to him that she wanted him to give to Jackie Wilson, who was his only artist at the time. Oh, word gets around. When you're producing a genius like Barry Gordy, everybody sought after him and the magic that he produced with the people he hired and the dream that he had to make over 40 acts famous and world-renowned and superstars and legendary artists that we are. So being a part of that was not an accident or coincidence. It was divine order. And I know that I was in the right place at the right time. Oh, you sure were. So, Martha, you mentioned some incredible names and icons when you were talking about the early days of Hitsville and writers and producers like Holland Dozier Holland and Smokey Robinson and, of course, Barry Gordy. Faye McMurray and and Barry was the top leader because if they couldn't write a song to his design or to his favor, he would get us in the A&R department and write a song himself. The example of that is Do You Love Me for the Contours. They were very difficult to get a hit on because I think Billy Gordon had just a different kind of voice. But Barry would show them how. He would come in, in the A&R department and sit at their piano, uh, his piano, in his house, and uh, he would show them how to write a song. And he knew how to talk to the artist. He knew how to pull the best out of you. He was a very, very good man with uh, bringing out your your, uh, your creative talent and um, a, a very good friend. He, was a very, very, he wasn't much older than us, and he was a very, very good friend and a kind person who, and opened up his house to let us come at any time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, he was open to us. And talk about that atmosphere. It really was his house. He lived upstairs, as you said. I, I was lucky yeah. enough to go to Hitsville years ago. But that must have been an incredibly exciting atmosphere with all the, that young talent running around Hitsville. It was magic. And, it, and, and forgive me, but we weren't running around. <laughs> we were brought in there by different producers. I was asked to come there by William Stevenson. He was the A&R director. He was the boss of the artist and repertoire department. So it wasn't like we were running around there. Uh, no, nobody <laughs> ran <laughs> ran around there. Everybody was des- designed and brought in by the different producers. Uh, Norman Whitfield would he would uh, uh, famous for psychedelic sh- uh, shack cloud nine and the re- revitalization of the Temptations uh, career. Uh, the, the what do you call it? Um, uh, disco era, I guess you would call that a. The psychedelic music. Segregation, determination, demonstration, integration, aggravation, humiliation, obligation to our nation. He opened up another door, but he was there from the very beginning, Norman Whiffle. He got together with Clay McMurray, and Clay McMurray was was uh, also uh, uh, the producer of Gladys Knight and the Pips when they came to the, to uh, Motown. They were not the first of, of uh, the, the crew, but they did come in later with Charlie Atkins and Maurice King, who were their instructors of when they were on other labels. We just, you know, and then the Four Tops came, who had been so successful with working with Billy Eckstein and uh, having a product on other labels. But it's like we were all gathered in like an exodus. It was, it was like all the talent was brought in around the same time in the early 60s and, uh, and 70s and produced the Motown sound. It was great because the Funk Brothers were musicians who were jazz arrangers. They were, they were uh, 
profound graduates of, of the school of, of music, music schools, and uh, knew their craft. They weren't like amateurs guessing or, or proposing. Our music is jazz or concert music, and most of the songs were put together like opera, where you had like my my Vandellas, uh, a name that I gave Rosalind Annette and myself, um, behind Adela Reese, who was my idol, and a street called Van Dyke that's on the east side because Motown's on the west side. I wanted to keep that war, that east side, west side war going, let people know I'm from the east side. And uh, we became successful after singing behind Marvin Gaye. And uh, on Stubborn Kind of Fellow, he had recorded prior to us singing Stubborn Kind of Fellow behind it, but he, had, he was trying to sing ballads. He was a jazz singer. It shows, his jazz talents shows in songs like What's Going On and uh, Sexual Healing and uh, holy, holy, uh, let's get it on. Those songs, you could see that he was a jazz singer and he had a smooth sound and a, a jazz voice. He wanted to be maybe like Frank Sinatra or Tony Bennett or Sammy Davis Jr. Uh, however, Motown pulled out the uh, gospel of him in the song, Stubborn Kind of Fella, Hitchhike and Pride and Joy, the songs that we recorded behind him. Our first engagement was... Uh, at the State Fair here in Detroit, the Beach Boys, and I'll always be grateful to them, allowed us to open their show at our State Fair. And we put up, we were put on the bill as Marvin and the Vandellas because come and get these memories. Our first uh, song to make the charts had not quite hit, but Stephen kind of fell ahead. So Motown was clever and booked us with the, with the uh, Beach Boys and started us on our way on the road, actually singing our recordings and being on stage and learning to perform. Amazing, so Marvin and the Vandellas, but let's let's talk about Come and Get These Memories and your first million seller, Heat Wave, as Martha Love and the Vandellas. Love is like a heat wave. Love, Love is, is like, like a heat wave. Love is like don't a heat say wave. that. You'll think it's that having a heat wave, a tropical heat wave. It's not about heat. I think it's about the Holy Spirit. I did a demo, like I said. I, I was called in, out of the studio when the union man showed up. And it's important to know uh, that the union has a lot to do with companies excelling. You've got to have representation. You've got to have laws and rules and regulations so that everybody is paid fairly and that everybody gets the, the right treatment. There, there's a, a need for a union, and I'm a union person. I'm also, I've been a lifetime member of Screen Actors Guild and, and uh American Federation Television Ready Artist. I have been uh, a union person and also on the board of, of our local union here in Detroit. Um, you have to have rules. So I'm in the uh, office minding the company's business, and William Stevenson comes and says, Martha, I want you to come and get on the mic and sing this song. Um, the union man has come in. And I felt like I had been arrested. I ran in the studio, and he gave me a similar melody. The track had already been cut, which was one of the rules. They wanted an artist to be on the mic when the song was recorded. So I stepped in the studio, put the earphones on, and they played the track. And I tried to fit the melody and the words together that he had just given me so so quickly, maybe two minutes, and I was under the gun <laughs> in in the micro, uh, with the microphone. Uh, and the, the, the ear, earphones in the dark in the room. And uh, I have to let him go. Turned out to be okay. Uh, it, it didn't sell very much. It was a good uh, good song, though. And uh, Holland Doja Holland heard my voice and decided that one of the songs they had written in their catalog was the first compilation that of their team. Holland Doja Holland had... Eddie Holland had recorded a song called Jamie. It went to number one, 
and after returning back off of his first press conference and record review, he decided he'd rather write. He don't really want to go on the stage. He don't really like the idea of the girls pulling and tucking at him because he's a very attractive man. He, he and his brother Brian, his younger brother Brian, and Lamont had all wanted to be uh, single performers, single singers, but uh, Lamont Dozier's song, What Goes Up Must Come Down, wasn't a hit. But Jamie went to number one. He decided he just wanted to write, so they wrote collectively, Come and Get These Memories. There's a beautiful three-part harmony jazz phrase at the beginning of the song, and it took James Jameson, our famous bass player who played the upright bass on the song, showed us where the harmony was and taught us how to sing the three-part harmony that's on the very beginning of the song. Uh, And it was marvelous. It was magical. We took two or three takes, and the song was done because all I had to do was emulate Eddie Holland's voice. And uh, the other two girls listened to what James taught us on his keyboard in his house. Um, um, we d- just made our first Come and Get These Memories and then went to top 20 in, in, in the charts. They continued to write with us. They wrote uh, Love Makes You Do Foolish Things or Love Like Yours Don't Come Knocking. That Brian Holland is actually singing in the background with the, with the Vandellas. Uh, we had um, Jimmy Mack. Nowhere to Run, uh, Quicksand, Live Wire, oh, quite a few songs. And uh, Love is Like a Heat Wave was our first Grammy nomination and the first song to make it to, I think it made it to number two. I'm still waiting on my gold record <laughs> for my wall. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's been a, a marvelous thing to know that uh, I was at the right place at the right time and I was able to bring my friends in and let them enjoy the magic of uh, Barry Gordy and his company, Hitsville, USA. And, and you mentioned some incredible, incredible songs, but there's one other that is I always listen to and so many other artists have recorded, but it was, it was your song, and that's Dancing in the Street. Howland did write Dancing in the Street. Um, my boss, William R. Stevenson, better known as Mickey, along with Ivy Hunter and Marvin Gaye, wrote Dancing in the Street. My first time hearing Dancing in the Street was when Marvin was recording it. I had finished my course over at Artist Development, which was a class that they, was held in one of Barry's houses. He bought at least seven houses on the, the boulevard as the, uh, as the business grew. Uh, from mansion to mansion, right there on our West Grand Boulevard, uh, we had an artist development department. And if you weren't on the road, we were being trained. We had music theory with Maurice King and Johnny Allen. We had uh, choreography lessons straight from vaudeville. Charlie, Charlie Atkins was with Colin Atkins' vaudeville team. And he was hired when Gladys Knight and the Pips came to uh, Hitsville, USA, by Maurice King, who was also a music director, who had a, uh, Maurice had a band called the 14, 14 Rhythm, uh, the Sweethearts of Rhythm. That's what it was, a 14-piece all-girl band, the Sweethearts of Rhythm. They were quite famous during the uh, show business times, like we had a Paradise Theater that featured all the top acts, and Maurice King was music director at the, at the, uh, at the Paradise Theater, and, and later on he worked at the Fox Theater, which was where we started out. Motown Reviews, a theater work in Detroit. It, you know, it was all um, a machine working, making everybody excellent at their craft. 
we had to be trained. We we were given uh, lessons in uh, dance, music theory, tones, voice, recording, and eventually all put together and set on the road on a Motown review. I was never on the Motown label except on compilations, but I was on the Gordy label. But we went out on the Motown review with 19, I think it was uh, 19 musicians. It was a 12-piece band, but they had uh, percussions and other things, road managers and tour managers, and uh, I think it was eight acts. Went on the first Motown review that included the Miracles, the Supremes, the Vandellas, Marvin Gaye, um, Stevie Wonder, Marvelettes, Contours. All of us, not a seat vacant on that broken-down trailway with no toilet. And we toured all over the United States and became famous together. So, yeah, Marvin Gaye sang Dancing in the Street first. But when I heard him uh, sing it, I kind of knew it after I heard him sing it a couple of times. His version was a little different than mine. He looked over and saw me standing in awe of him and said to Mickey, William Stevenson, and Ivy Hunter, the other writer of Dancing in the Street, and said, hey, man, let's try this song on Martha. And I nearly fainted because I didn't know he was, he, he, he was, I didn't even know he could see me standing there in such awe of him because he was so, he was so talented and so good looking. Yeah, I had a schoolgirl crush on him, but he was never a, 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 a romantic item. He was always the spiritual good singer and good musician that I admired and adored. Uh, we had um, traveled quite a bit together and we would always be on stage or off stage singing behind him. And I just grew to, to just love him, just, just love Marvin Gaye. When I heard him sing it, I asked him if I could sing it the way I felt it, because it was more intimate with him. It's like he was singing to his girlfriend. But I heard calling out around the world as the lyrics, and that's where my heart went. We actually danced in my street as a child, because we had no recreation hall. My dad worked for the city water department. He and Mr. Elliot, who worked for the bus company, went to the city council and uh, asked them if they could block off the street and let us dance in the street on Saturdays. We have to stop at 12, but we were, uh, you know, the neighborhood was policed. You couldn't stand on the street corner and sing, or you couldn't dance in the street unless you blocked it off and had permission. So we were correct. But when I sang Dancing in the Street, that's where my heart went, back to my childhood and my teenage days where we could actually block our street off and dance. So it was two different feelings, but it turned out to be a winner because the world felt it. And I know that everybody, when they're free, they will dance in the street. Oh, absolutely. What a great story. So, Martha, talk a little bit about what it must have been like. You were very young, and you're on the road in these incredible tours it wasn't real comfortable for you, the artists, all the time. You said traveling all together, not an empty seat, not a bathroom on the bus. It must have been really exciting, but also really hard work at the same time. It was wonderful. It was it was it was a, it was like being on a, a a day camp trip. We all had to learn how to ride that bus together in peace. We all had to learn how to eat with that little budget of, of money we got per diem. Uh, we had to learn how to share dressing rooms and to help each other uh, stay a, a, awake <laughs> and, and find, uh, find food together with the small money that we had. Uh, it, was a, it was a tour that probably will never happen again uh, anywhere with anybody, but we trusted in uh, the, the Barry Gordy's dream, and uh, Smokey Robinson was the star. He had a song called, Mickey's Monkey.
when we would perform and do the finale, we would make segregated, segregated audiences come together in the South and get up and party. We uh, would make them break down barriers themselves uh, and defy the, the, the security people who would stand about and actually hit people in the head with sticks and clubs if they would get up and, and be too excited and, and dance. So we saw a revolution. We took our music everywhere. Uh, there's a, a 94 one-nighter uh, schedule on the wall at Hitchville, USA. When you go through for the tour, uh, you'll see how, how rigorous that first tour was. But it was fun. It was fun being away from home. We were very well protected. We had chaperones. And uh, the men had uh, Thomas Beans Bowles as their chaperone, and we had Bernice Morrison as our chaperone, who rode right along on that rugged bus, bus, bus tour. We worked nearly every night those three months. 94 one night was quite a bit of an itinerary, but we saw it through. We had accidents. We had uh, casualties. But we made it through those 94. It wasn't hard work. It was enjoyment. It was fun doing music with the same band, a big band, horns, and, 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 and uh, to ride right along with them, to get to know them personally, and to, to have them teach us how to, to uh, like Jack, Jack Ashford, the percussionist, he taught us how to take uh, sardines and uh, popcorn and drink a lot of water, and it would make you feel good and make you feel full. And you could make it to the next hot dog or, or hamburger that you could, you could get. Just learning how to live on the road and, and seeing what it was like for the people whose shoulders we were standing on, uh, it was amazing. It was, it was uh, not hard work. It was joy. It was a, a rebirth of our lives mm. from just singing in high school choirs and, and in our churches to the big stage with real musicians. I mean, it was a joy and an education that all of us have benefited from. Amazing stories. And you also end up on all the big TV shows of the time, the Joey Bishop show and American Bandstand and Mike Douglas and Soul Train, Ed Sullivan, and a show that I love and watch old clips from all the time on YouTube, the great show Shindig. That must have been exciting, Martha, to be on television. Oh, it was exciting being on television here in Windsor with Robin Seymour, our very first uh, television uh, show. We would go over across the bridge, and that's before 911. It was free to go to Canada. We had I thought it was part of Detroit. I thought Windsor was part of Detroit until 911, and now we have to have passports and all kinds of legal papers to go into Canada, um, our sister country. I had no idea we were that close to another another country. Uh, but that was the first thrill, the Robin Seymour show. And he recently passed away, got rested. So he has a book that kind of tells about the fact that we were on the stage uh, for him. He had come to Detroit to the Fox Theater and uh, with a bunch of acts, featured us uh, on, on a show at the Fox Theater. I think it ran five days a week. And uh, I was called, just before I sang Jimmy Mack, I was called to the edge of the stage to announce that the National Guard was in the streets, the sirens were going off, and a riot had broken out in Detroit. So, it, 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 yeah, the, the TV shows like Dick Clark, oh, boy, what a thrill to have all of those wonderful youngsters sitting around, some in their school sweaters, and, and some, of, uh, some of them are just, uh, just graduating high school themselves, just like us, uh, dancing and, and making our music famous. It wasn't shown, but Come and Get These Memories got us an encore, the first one on, on the uh, Dick Clark show. After we finished singing, the audience gave us such an approval. He said, oh, come on, let's do it again. And we started at the very beginning, and we did an encore of Coming with These Memories. That let me know that we would be favored all over the world, thanks to Dick Clark. 
Fantastic. And you also went over to the UK and were on Ready, Steady, Go. It was it was wonderful to be on Ready, Steady, Go with the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and the uh, Freddie and the uh, and the, and the, um, Freddie um, and the Dreamers. I'm trying to think. I'm Henry Eight. I am Henry Eight. I am Freddie and the Dreamers. That's what they were. Freddie and the Dreamers. The the dog, the pretty things. Uh, Jerry and the Pacemakers. Millie Small. Dusty Springfield. Reggie, better known as Elton John. Oh, yes, we did Ready, Steady, Go with a lot of American acts as well as a lot of English acts and uh, got to know some, some wonderful people. My uh, real blessing came when Murray Kaufman in Brooklyn Fox, at the Brooklyn Fox, presented us with the the English act and the American act, about 12 of us on a show, and I got to know the beautiful Dusty Springfield. I was put in the room with her when she was having maybe a, a bit of a fit, being left alone and being from... England and, and not knowing anybody and being on the show with a lot of other other acts, uh, I guess Murray Kaufman felt that my fellowship would be of some avail. So I was uh, actually put in a room with her, and we became friends. She started singing with us backstage with Marvin Gaye. It would be four back back background vocals. Uh, just just in a matter of, of friendship and, and loving music. Uh she had wishing and hoping out at the time and it was it was just uh, a joy to meet her. Our, our relationship continued when uh, she got back to England and had a BBC special. She was the number one female vocalist in England at the time. BBC gave her a special and she insisted that Martha and the Vandellas come over and be on her show. When uh, Barry Gordy got wind of it, he said, oh, no, we're going to send all of our acts over and say hello to Tamla Motown, which is what the label that our music was distributed in England. And uh, he sent along Earl Van Dyke and the Funk Brothers, uh, eight-piece band. I had never worked with Earl Van Dyke except for in the studio. The Funk Brothers never traveled with us. They might have been somewhere maybe on the road, but most of the time, they were kept in the studio recording song after song. Well, Barry sent uh, the Supremes, who were not known in England. Uh, Kim Weston and Marvin Gaye had already played uh, England because of their duet, It Takes Two. The Temptations were just about to be discovered in, in in the UK, and Stevie Wonder. We all went over and we did that uh, first Motown review in England for BBC, and it uh, made us famous all over England. <laughs> and we've been touring ever since, uh, almost every year, and have a great uh, reception when we appear there. Fantastic. So, Martha, let's go back and talk a little bit more about Hitsville. And you talked about training and artist development and and how they really did everything for you so that you could be successful. And it clearly whatever they did work because it's all stood the test of time. Tell us more about what that was like inside the the buildings at Hitsville and 
what they taught you and particular memories of teachers or other people that were part of your life back then as you were, you know, really learning the ropes? I, I was uh, I, I was negligent in not mentioning Professor Maxine Powell. That's the name I gave her. She was just known as uh, Miss Manners, Maxine Powell. She was a teacher who taught us uh, personal uh, social graces. She uh, was accused of being an etiquette teacher, but she would correct you and say, no, I didn't teach you etiquette. Your parents should have taught you how to use a knife or fork and a spoon, but I'm teaching you class. She would say that it would turn the heads of kings and queens. And she was right because we did get to perform uh, for the queens and for the counts and duchess and presidents of our United States and everything because we were, we were socially uh, trained. We knew how to, to act when we were the first to, to sit at the counters in the segregated uh, uh, counters in, in, in the South. I'm from the South, so I understood it a little better than most of my, my, my alumni. But uh, it was you had to have a certain manner about yourself in order to survive in society. And she taught us all of the graces that we need to know, how to carry ourselves, how to sit, how to be ladies and gentlemen. And it was very important. The training that we got made us stand out and uh, become uh, legendary artists. Uh, the uh, number one positions we've all held. We've had number one female vocalists uh, and groups, you know, like the Supremes and, and uh, like the uh, Marvelettes, who were the first girls to make uh, make it to England. Uh, they played Holland as well before the Motown Review. So we, we had um, uh, great teachers, and the different houses had different rooms, and you would go from one to the other as scheduled, at first, we were managed by Barry Gordy, as well as recorded by him, but that was discovered to be a monopoly and had to be discontinued when we were all sent on our own way to get our own managers and our own press releases and our own um, uh, show business uh, managers. We were successful because we were good. We were trained. We were ready. And we had hit records to go along with it. That was very important. Barry had uh, insignia an insignia on his uh, 45 saying, it's what's in the grooves that counts. And that was so mm. true. So true. Mm. And uh, he wanted to make the sound of young America, but he made the sound of the world. We are all over the world. Our music is, I'm getting fan letters now during this pandemic, and everybody's sort of, sort of having to sit down and stay inside. I'm getting more fan mail than I did when we, we had hit records <laughs> when we were recording uh, and traveling you know uh, regularly uh it's it's amazing how much uh love we've spread all over the world with the songs and barry would critique the songs he wouldn't let you just sing anything you would never hear us sing uh kill the police or it's getting hot in here let's take off all our clothes we, we didn't we didn't have songs like that Mama said, knock you out. We, we didn't sing those kind of songs. We sang songs about love and, and uh, maybe a little bit heartbreak, uh, but then you have to share your, your, your sorrow so, so that someone can enlighten you and, 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 and turn your grief into happiness. We have uh, a reputation for having good music and good sounds, and uh, I'm very proud, very proud to have you know, got to get that card and be asked to come to Hitsville. Amazing stuff. And so you roll along and you're working, you do some acting, you're on Broadway, uh, having a wonderful career. I, I remember you in, in, in uh, Ain't Misbehaving many years ago. You and do, then, all right. I sure do. And then in 1995, Martha Reeves and the Vandellas were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That must have been an incredible, incredible highlight for you, Martha. I'd love to hear about that. We had, we had uh, hoped to be uh, inducted into the Rockwell Hall of Fame. Uh, and when the uh, opportunity came, I was asked uh, who I would like to have uh, announce me. Who, who in New York would I like to have announce me? And I'd had the honor and pleasure of meeting 
Fred Snyder of the B-52s. He and I have corresponded and been close friends uh, ever since we met through Ace Richardson's team management. Um, so I thought, why not? I had seen them perform, and I love, love Shaq. I love the rhythm and everything. And Fred and I have, we have similar rhythmic spirits. You know, he, he likes, and we're both from the South. I didn't know that either until I, I really got to talk with him. We asked him to uh, announce us at the Rockwell Hall of Fame, and I was able to get all of my backup singers inducted uh, at the time. It was uh, Rosalind, uh, who she was Holmes by then, and Annette uh, Sterling, uh, Helton, Annette Helton. She was Helton. I, those girls loved to marry. Uh, and uh, and Betty Kelly, uh, she was formerly with the Velvetts. Anyway, I got uh, permission from the Rockwell Hall of Fame, as well as my sister Lois, who joined me in and uh, and sang actually with Rosalind Holmes when when Betty Kelly quit. I mean, the girls get married, have babies, quit, whatever. And uh, I never considered myself as a group. I always had backup singers, and I always kept going no matter who. Uh, decided they didn't want to do this anymore. Um, asked Fred Snyder to to uh, announce us, and he uh, was so good at, at it. He he not only was a fan; I didn't know he was a fan. He had a collection of our music, and actually brought his uh, 45 box with him to the actual induction and showed people how he had brought my 45 and how, had practically worn it out when he lifted up out of the box. At the actual ceremony, I was thrilled. I want you all to know that uh, security is really good here because when I walked in with this, they said, are there any explosives in there? And I said, no. And they said, okay, go in. <laughs> but anyway, this is my uh, original uh, record tote, I guess they called them back then in the Stone Age, back when vinyl was still around. Y'all remember that? But anyway, here it is, the record that was my downfall and uplifting, my original copy of... Dancing in the Street, which uh, I ruined it on a portable Sears record player, but I kept it anyway because this is the record that changed my life. Because in 1964, I heard this song driving along with my parents. Uh, my father hated rock and roll, so luckily my mother would leave the you know soul record station on the you know radio. But anyway, I heard this song and I was totally galvanized. Immediately when I got home, I got my six-transistor radio and stuck it to my ear until they played it again. And it was the second time they played Dancing in the Street in uh, Oceanport, New Jersey. And uh, as soon as it hit the charts, drove to the A&P, to the record section, and bought it. And uh, from that point on, it was Martin the Vandellas. It was a plan that he enjoyed as well, inducting us and... Uh having us sing I'm, I'm, uh, his name is Schaefer Paul Schaefer yep. played a rock version of Dancing in the Street I'll never forget it was so different from the Motown sound but we rocked the house and, and uh, the B-52s they danced and, and sang with us and made it an occasion I hope it's the, it's uh, one of the, the, the best uh, R&B uh, in, inductions that they've ever had for the Rockwell Hall of Fame uh, it wasn't exactly rock and roll. The rhythm and blues fit very well when Paul Schaefer played <laughs> played it uh, hard rock. What, what a marriage, though! It was more exciting than actually getting the, the award, being in the presence of all that great talent and having us come together to get us inducted. It was wonderful. Wow, what what a story! So, still working today, and I want to talk about your recent live performance for the first time in in some time. But you also, at one point, served your community, and uh, as I recall, Martha, weren't you a member of the Detroit City Council for a number of years? Because my dad was able to go to the City Council, and uh, they gave us permission to dance in the street. I could have been all of twelve or thirteen years old when we danced in our street. But I, I remembered it, how dedicated my dad was to the city of Detroit. They would call him uh, anytime while he was trying to sleep in between shifts. He had a swing shift. He would get up if there was an emergency, a water main break. He was a manual laborer. He wasn't one on the, uh, uh, on the staff 
of the water department. He was one of the manual laborers, and he worked really hard and had a dedication. Music slowed down for me a little bit, and I looked around and saw that there was a lot of things that needed to have changed, have it uh, to be changed here in the city of Detroit. There were ordinances that I introduced that prevented people from just throwing a person's belongings when they evict them, just put them out on the berms of the of the street. Um, I got that changed to the point where if you were to evict somebody, now you put their belongings in a one of those roll-off garbage uh, uh, trucks and put their belongings there for three days. And if they don't come and get their belongings and to move them and put them in the in the uh, in the garbage, uh, uh, not the not the street, not the clutter of the street would would junk. And the only people that didn't like that ordinance that I had passed while on the council was uh, the banks. <laughs> they didn't. They didn't necessarily want to be in the in the garbage business. <laughs> so so I, I got a lot of of uh, bad uh, naysayers regarding that. But I did a whole lot of good on the council because I considered the people to be more important than the, uh, the running of the city. They they uh, they kind of over the city uh, people sort of overlooked the personal things like uh, single parents and welfare recipients and uh, the people on the street, the, 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 they, they had to get some more shelters and uh, go around and collect uh, our homeless in the winter uh, off the streets and, and uh, a lot, lot of things that I was able to help with while on city council. Then uh, business picked back up and uh, I went back to work. But for uh, in 2005, I was a bit idle. There was no work for us. And uh, I felt serving the city council was a good replacement for the service that we give as performers. We actually service the world with joy and uh, happiness and good music. So I kind of felt like I was doing the same thing working for the city on the city council. You sure do. And, And when we caught up last week, you shared with me your first live performance since this pandemic uh, in late May. That must have been fantastic to get back up on the stage. It wasn't so much on the stage. It was fantastic getting back with the people that love us and have made us famous. I was uh, not at all doubtful that we would have an uh, audience. And because of the limitations of uh, the facilities, we had to be had to be spaced. But I did the capacity just on uh, my name. I couldn't take my... Vandellas with me because it it wasn't in the budget. I had a choice to take musicians or to take the singers. And since it was a live performance, I preferred to have the musicians that I had worked with and had uh, who knows my shows and will give me what I need to be success on the stage. And uh, I put a segment in my show and I think I'll keep it in uh, part of uh, performing when we can in auditoriums and different clubs to just have a question and answer period, like we're having right now, a conversation, people want to know things. They want to hear what you think, uh, what you say about uh, things. For instance, one of the questions I was asked was how has show business changed over the years? And um, my sense of humor made me uh, respond really quickly with arthritis. <laughs> and I got a good laugh. So uh, there's a comedic side to me. And uh the joy of performing with people and being with the people who know us and people who have bought our records all, all of these 64 years, bringing their children and their grandchildren to see us perform and in love with the Motown sound to the point where they actually sing along with us. They know the words. And I told them, you know, the Vandellas weren't here, but sing the Vandella part. And uh, I had people actually say, I give my right arm to be a Vandella, <laughs> to be a backup singer. I mean, having... Having uh, that kind of response and getting that kind of information from the people who dare come out of their house, who have their masks and who are, you know, spaced socially in the in the uh, in the auditorium, and to to, to be uh, ready to to rock and roll. And at the end of the show, I had at least twenty people on stage with me dancing. I had one guy that danced like James Brown. I had another lady who danced like Tina Turner. I mean, we had a ball, and I was. Uh, confident to know that we have a place in this history. We have a place in the hearts of America 
being a part of the Motown Sound, being part of Hitsville, USA, Barry Gordy's Dream, and uh, all of those wonderful producers and musicians who have worked really hard to make us good, good music, outstanding music from learned professors. Fantastic. Well, Martha, what a joy to talk to you and, and your energy. And, you know, you, you, one would not know that you're about to turn 80 years old uh, in mid-July. And uh, I can't wait to see you when you're touring and you head back east. And I can't thank you enough for, for being a guest on Great Minds. This is a, not just a highlight for the podcast, but this is a lifetime highlight, a chance to talk to you and go inside the Hitsville, USA, you know, the magic there. And, and uh, I can't thank you enough for doing this, Martha. Well, I can't, I can't thank you enough for waking me up and, <laughs> and, find, and find out how much I really, really love talking to you and, and, and how much I appreciate you, you know, just seeking me out to find out if, if I'm uh, as in love with the music as my songs and, and my, my, my spirit displays. And yes, I am so glad to be a part of, of uh, the music world in America. Mm-hmm.